Well, that was Ulster's biggest test of the season so far and the great have brought feeling of deja vu. Defeat in the Aviva again, although this time against Connacht, but once again it raises questions over the trophy winning capabilities of Dan McFarland's Ulster. We have a lot of your listener questions to get through uh, with what's going to feel a bit like a bit of an investigation, I would imagine. So I'm Gareth Hanna and joining me on this week's podcast are Jonathan Bradley. Hello, Jonathan. Hiya, you well. And Adam McCandry. Hello, Adam. Yeah, it's good to see you again. It's been a while. Welcome back. Welcome back, indeed. I felt I had to tone down my intro there. I felt like my usual intro is a bit too upbeat for the tone of the questions we got in. So I was trying to make that a little bit more like somber. Was it okay? I think I hit the right note. As I said to Johnny on the way back from Dublin on Saturday, it's not a season if you don't have a harrowing drive back from Dublin to look forward to at some point. Should I edit in like a funeral march or something over the top of our usual intro if you're looking for the right tone? Yeah, well, pretty much given the, the, the tone of these questions. So Ulster are now in, what is it, just over a month worth of a break and off the back of what was the 36-11 loss to Connacht, that's going to feel like a long, long time, I would imagine, for all of these players, for Dan and probably plenty of our listeners and the supporters as well. So we'll just get straight into this with a few of the questions I mean, there's a familiar tone with, with every single question we've got, but a couple that can uh, that can kick us off are, well, who better to start with than Weekly Donal himself? Were Ulster undercooked, outsmarted, outcoached, or did they just underperform? He asked a combination of all of the above, maybe. But he says this was coming, wasn't it? The performances weren't worthy of the results in, in previous weeks. And we'll throw Stephen Rossbottom's question in here as well. He it gives a few more suggestions as what as to what might have gone wrong. He asks, have Ulster's true colours finally been shown, i.e. our attacking play and lack of cohesion? Did Ulster finally come back to reality with a bang? Did the returning players upset the rhythm they built up? Or did they just not have the fight? Or were they, quite simply, just not good enough? So plenty of options there. And maybe it's a, it's a little smattering of, of a few of those. But Jonathan, how would you pinpoint what went wrong? You just weren't anywhere close to good enough on the day. Like when you're dealing with player, professional players and professional sport at this level, like you don't have to be that far off to look very far off a team that's clearly up for it, that has their game plan nailed, that isn't making the same, the same amount of errors and is playing to something that is near to their potential. Like, and also didn't do, also didn't do any of those things. So you know, when you look at it in terms of everything that went wrong for Ulster, like the 25-point margin um, can be a lot of things, but it wasn't in any way unflattering to the performance. Yeah, it's expected for the, the level of the performance, I'm sure, without wishing to sound like I'm sitting beside Tim McGarry on a Friday night. Adam, who do you blame for uh, what went wrong? Or I mean, it's probably not about pointing fingers, but what would you blame? Maybe I suppose is a, is a nicer way of putting it. Hey, Bruce, you're going you're gonna to throw the blame question on me are you um <laughs> look I, I think it's not unfair to say that Ulster had flattered to deceive for the first few games of the season you know four wins from four I don't think you could have been less pleased with four wins from four to start the season because I, I don't think there was any one of them where you would have really said Ulster hit their straps so you kind of felt like this performance was coming and 
Look, I, I'm going to disagree slightly with Johnny because I think at half time, I think being, what was it, 17-6 down was a little bit unfair because one of them was Billy Burns, his first intercept try. And I felt like Ulster weren't quite that far off. But in the second half, I don't know what happened sort of between half time and them coming back out for the second half, but they just never got going. Like Connacht just put their foot on the throat and never let them go. I don't think I've ever seen a more dominant first 20 minutes of a second half where the team doesn't score. Like Connacht were all over them for the first 20 minutes, didn't score, but it just felt like there was only one way it was going. And inevitably they get over for one try in the corner through porch and then the floodgates opened. So I think there is sort of like a, a culmination of things that have happened in the first four weeks of the season that just fell into this game. And they came up against a team who wanted it more, who were playing better. Like, let's give Connaught a bit of credit here. They played well. They had a really good line speed in defense. Jack Cardi, I thought, played very well. Their breakdown was so much superior to Ulster's. Like, I think we have to talk about that as a really big reason why Ulster couldn't win this game because every time they got into a position where you felt like they were going to attack, one of Connor Oliver, Owen Masterson, um, Dave Heffernan had a good game at the breakdown as well. They were right in there and Ulster just were not competitive at the breakdown at all. And we've seen them in previous games this season whenever they came up, came up against Rory Darge in, uh, against, or for Glasgow. He ran the roost against them as well. Um, I can't remember who played open side for the Lions, but he had a good game as well uh, a couple of weeks ago. So coming up against good open sides who do good work at the breakdown has been a real problem for them. And that just stopped them from getting any momentum at the Aviva. As good as Connacht were, though, Jonathan, and I know given the, the tone of questioning towards Dan McFarland from from like all of the journalists in recent weeks, probably... It to some level a defeat was uh, was maybe foreseeable, but not in the manner in that manner. Well, I mean, we talked about this before, and we talked about it during the week and right up to kick off. That I think anyone that had watched Ulster thought that they were going to need to make a step, a considerable step up at some point in the coming weeks, this side of Christmas. But equally, I don't think that. We can look at it and say it was obvious that it was going to be this weekend and that it was going to be the result was going to be such an emphatic defeat if they didn't make the step up. Because, you know, on paper, and you can even just say this by looking at who was and wasn't called up for Ireland, like on paper, Ulster had a much better team than Connacht had out. Connacht were missing mm-hmm. their star man, their talisman in Bondiaki. It was moved to a neutral venue and I know there has been some talk from Connacht that they're not particularly well suited to playing at the sports ground anyway um, given the style of rugby they like to play but the fact of the matter was it was at a neutral venue it was a team who had won one game out of four so far who against the Dragons put in by some distance the worst performance from any Irish team this year until Saturday and none of that is to like disrespect Connacht or say that Connacht didn't deserve to win because they were fantastic. They did deserve to win, obviously. And they deserve to win by the amount of points that they won by. It could have actually been even worse for Ulster. But the fact of the matter is that while we had spoken about why Ulster were somewhat flattering to deceive, as it were, it's erroneous hindsight to say that anyone could have predicted that it, the wheels were going to come off so spectacularly and that they were going to come off this week. I don't think it was a case of they were, anybody thought they were going to 
lose so spectacularly. I agree with you on that, but I think this was the first game where you really felt like they were coming up against a team that could bloody their nose, where you felt like this is the perfect opportunity for Ulster to put those first four weeks behind them and say, we did the business when we needed to. Now we're going to really step up our game and put in a performance that I think people expect of us whenever we come up against big teams. Now, this was the final game before this, the Autumn Internationals. You've got your internationals back looking to make a statement before they go into camp this week. You always hear them talking about they want to put in a big performance against their international teammates, against the other Irish provinces, and they just didn't. You talk about producing something that people expect of them. Stuart K. Martin has a, a stat for it. He says that he has read that Ulster have won seven of their last 23 games against the other provinces. Now, I haven't checked that out. Uh, to see if that's right or not. Jonathan, you'd maybe know better than I would, but he uh, still also continue flatter to deceive against the poorer teams when in reality limited progress has been made against the teams that count in terms of winning similar or winning silverware. So is what happened on Saturday what people should be expecting from this Ulster team? Because when it comes to these big games, that's what happens. They get beat. Is that unfair? I don't think it's unfair in terms of what Ulster have produced over the past X amount of years against other Irish sides. But I think to look at it that way is to to detach it from just how far away they were from winning. Like this wasn't a loss. This was a thumping. So all of those numbers for past derbies, you know, will include getting beat by two points by by Leinster in the Aviva. And you can't compare that to getting beat by 25 points here. They're two different, two different things. In an awful lot of the games that Ulster go into against Leinster, they're not the favourites. In a lot, at least half the games that they play against Munster, they're not the favourites. Whereas this was a game that Ulster were, by most people, and also by the bookies who tend to get these things right more often than not, especially in rugby, they were expected to win. And they were essentially beaten out of the gate. Yeah, well, you bring us on then to what Dan McFarland had to say after the game, because this, you mentioned the bookies odds, that was a, a frustration of Dan's, that Ulster weren't at it in a game that, the, by, according to the bookies, they should have won. So we'll hear a little bit of what of what Dan had to say after the game now, because uh, I think it was very interesting. Do you, do you know one thing I, I know about us? We're, we're not good when we're favourites. You know, I find that so frustrating. We'll pull monster performances out when... You know, we're playing teams that on paper are much better than us. I'm not being disrespectful to Connor there. You know, like we, we were favourites tonight. I'm just saying from the bookies' point of view, and I don't think we play as well when we do that. Me as an individual, you know, in any competition that I'm in, I, I couldn't give a f- whether they're good or not. I just want to crush them. You know, so I find it frustrating when, you know, let, let, let's let's say you, 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 you're playing a team who, who really shouldn't. Be at your own, and you beat them by twenty points, but you leave four tries behind. Oh, I find that so frustrating. So, you know, I, I think that's I think that's where we are. Don't don't get me wrong here. This is not a question of effort, and and it never has been. It's not even a question of it mattering and and guys working really hard and trying really hard. There's there's something that's almost intangible intangible about it that 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 some teams definitely have, and we're searching for that. You know, we, we still win a lot of these games. But I think where it makes the difference is I, I think that process being the most important thing 
what you actually do and not the outcome. You know, I, I think that makes the difference between champion teams and teams that are really good. Can, can, can I just say that? Like, if you, if you put that in isolation, it sounds like I'm being rude about Connor. I'm 100% not. I said it in the week. That they're, they're a quality team that sits towards, the, at the moment they don't, but always sits towards the top of our league. And there is no disrespect. They, they beat us fair and square um, to, tonight. So, you know, I, I just appreciate that, you know, if you take what I said there in isolation, that's my, maybe what it sounds like. Um, I'd be disappointed if, if that came across. So, Adam, what do you make of it? Interesting stuff that, to my knowledge anyway, Dan probably hasn't talked quite so openly about his uh, his frustrations with Ulster and maybe a lack of progress, particularly whenever they're favourites. And also, rather unspecifically, the the something that, that Ulster need to, to improve. What do you make of it? You know, I, I'm a wee bit concerned by what he was saying because... As a team who openly admit that they want to be competing at the tail end of seasons for trophies, at some point you're going to be favourites. For me, that's a big mental issue with this team. And I understand that this is a team that probably hasn't had a massive amount of success so far and a massive amount of experience of winning in knockout games. But there's only so many times you can go through the process of losing games in the big on the big occasion and learning from that before eventually you've got to say well when are we going to start winning these so i think there that to me suggests there's a lot of mental work to be done with this squad and it's still a young squad it is still a squad that a lot of the players are still growing into the likes of dave mccann and michael lowry and nathan doke they've only just come into the squad and they're really starting to make uh, the positions that they're playing their own but you've still got to try and instill that winning mentality in them and if you can't produce big performances whenever you're favourites, then you are going to be on the end of some results like this. Maybe not as bad as 25 points against Connacht, mm. but you know, losing games that perhaps you shouldn't be losing. And that's where Leinster are so good, where Saracens are so good, uh, where the big French teams are good. They win the games that they have to, so that whenever they get to the big games, they can elevate their game to the next level. As for the intangibles... I like what he's saying about making um, their own like personal feelings on the game more important than the outcome so that they're holding themselves accountable rather than using the result to hold themselves accountable because that goes back to the first four games of the season where if you look at the results in isolation, you think, well, four bonus point wins, that's a great start to the season. But you're coming back in on a Monday morning and you're saying to yourselves, look, we did not play as well as we should be playing in those games. So whenever you start to hold yourselves to that level instead of the results, then yes, there is a lot more that you will be building on. You will be getting better. So he's saying the right things there. I think just so far we haven't seen them taking that next step to the next level. So where that solution comes from, you think maybe Dwayne Vermeulen will add a little bit to that, but you don't want to be relying on one player to do that. You want it to be coming from within. You want guys within the squad to be driving that. So I think there just has to be a little bit of soul searching over the over the next week to see where they can go from here. Yeah, it probably will be over the next, the next four weeks, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Johnny, if you had the answer to this, you should probably let Ulster know and not say it on a podcast and you, they might uh, might give you a very highly paid job but any ideas what that intangible might be as to what Ulster need to do to bridge that gap? 
No, because I've got no idea. Yeah. Because I don't think anybody do you think does. Dan, do you think Dan does? No, I, I, no, I genuinely don't. Because the fact of the matter is that not winning when your favourites isn't good on days like Saturday, but it's terminal in things like semi-finals against the Leicester Tigers last year. So if you look at that game against Leicester and look at it and say, right, what did we learn from that? And one of the things that they said was we need to learn as a leadership group, as leaders on the field, what do we do when it's not going right to make it go right? What, how do we redress things when they're going this badly wrong? And that was where you would have expected Ulster to come out in the third quarter of the game, only down 17-6, which given what they were able to mount an attack, wasn't all that bad. And if they had have got the next score, then it would have been a game again. But like they came out in that third quarter, losing a game that they were expected to win and put out what was quite possibly the worst 40 minutes that they've had in years. Like the only rival that I could really think to at the time was that Ospreys game two Februarys ago. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's just that idea of, you know, the best teams and that, that this is what Dan was saying there, the best teams, the teams that Ulster set out their yearly ambitions to emulate by winning silver don't have days like that and they certainly don't have them you know if they do have them they don't have them with anywhere near the regularity that um that Ulster have them and I would put that Leicester game up there in the same in the same bracket but it's something that's happened for quite a while like like Ulster just have more bad days than a team of their quality should the thing the thing is for me that Ulster have long enjoyed this underdog mentality as long as I can remember covering the team, there's always been that aspect of we are the underdogs, nobody expects us, and then we sort of steal in and win. Like the there, like you know, going down to Munster in that Heineken Cup quarterfinal and winning. Nobody expected them to win that. They then play the semi-final against Edinburgh, where they are overwhelming favourites to win that. And they only just squeeze by a team that they should have put away handily. And then they're hammered in the final by Leinster. So for, for a team that keeps talking about progressing and wants to be at that top level, and they're absolutely right to want that. Like this, this isn't a slight on their ambitions because the ambition absolutely should be up at the top levels of European rugby. But they have to shed an underdog mentality. I, I did, I'm not a mental coach, so I don't know how you do that. But to me, this is 100% a mental thing. This is nothing to do with you know, what they produce on the pitch. If you're going out there and you're not comfortable being favourites in a game, then you're never going to win a trophy. Maybe it is something then that, that Dwayne Vermeulen can help a little bit as somebody who is used to being far from an underdog and, and used to being part of uh, of one of the, if not the best best team in world rugby. So who knows, maybe... Well, like obviously, they like South Africa won the World Cup. Yes, that's all well and good. But like also have such a large contingent of players that have won European Cups with Leinster. Yeah. And, won and Six Nations with, with Ireland. Six Nations with Ireland, Grand Slams with Ireland. So at some point, it doesn't become what can Dwayne Vermeulen do to change what feels like a historic mentality problem. You know, it's how do you shed what to the outside world has become part of your identity? This must be like, very frustrating, how... Jonathan, because it feels very similar to what Spurs go through as well. <laughs> but that's the perfect example. <laughs> like Spurs, and I was thinking about this a lot yesterday while watching Spurs, having watched Ulster. Spurs are a a football club where 
to Spurs, to be Spursy has become an adjective that people use in relation to other things. Yeah. Like that's so deeply ingrained in their mentality. Yeah, Ulster Spurs it on Saturday night. Yeah, like exactly. But like, and then Spurs Ulstered it on uh, Sunday <laughs> afternoon. Like, but why, you know, why does a team generationally maintain these virtual psychosis? Yeah. When the players are always different, the players change, but the club doesn't. And that's yeah, something like that's very work. bizarre. And yeah. like, that's why, you know, you have these incredibly strange things that happen in sports where like the Sox and the Chicago Cubs are two of the most storied sports teams in America. And they went to combine 200 years without winning a World Series in the same way that it's laughable that Spurs have won nothing more than the League Cup since 1991. And it's bizarre that Ulster, for as good as they've been in relation to the other teams that they're playing, haven't won anything since 2006. But like, there's nothing to say that this is going to stop either. Equally, though, if it does stop, it, it feels like possibly it's one of those things where it just needs to stop once and then it's done. They can go in a little bit of a row because that knowledge then is there and is in is in Ulster. Absolutely, but I think we said that in like 20... 20- I know, yeah, it's doing things yourself. Of course, yeah. yeah. Of course, because the assumption was that those teams were going to learn how to win via losing. And then you get the 2014-15. Well, yeah, 15 in Scottsdale essentially being the end of that sort of run of silverware potential. And then you're back to square one again. And that's, I suppose that's what makes the Challenge Cup frustrating last year because it was a chance. Yeah, well, that, yeah we, said, we said that at the time. That, that yeah. was the potential to have a breakthrough in terms of silverware and to show that you could do it. So it was a massive, massive missed opportunity. And it still, I'm sure, still feels that way to the players. But that's Saturday's performance isn't the kind of thing that derail, derails their silverware hopes for this season in any way. Yeah, because everybody, everybody is going to lose, really. Like Leinster lost to Connacht last year and have won the league four years in a row. But the problem is repeating those types of days. And that's what I think McFarlane's getting at. That like the the best teams don't have those days as often as Ulster have. Yeah. And those days, the one that they had on Saturday is the same sort of day that they had in the second half at Welford Road. Yeah. Well, what uh, three of our questions were relating to in particular was about a game plan uh, going into the match. So Mark Hunter, Nathan Cassidy and Big Jim all asked about this. Mark said that the game plan in the first half obviously didn't work and Jim said that Connacht didn't do anything different in this game than they had been doing all season. So they all wanted to know, basically, why wasn't there a plan B or something different planned from Ulster to uh, to get round Connacht? And whose responsibility was it to step up at halftime and to change that when it became obvious that things weren't working? I think that's maybe what you were sort of edging towards a little bit earlier, Jonathan, in terms of that there you expected there maybe to be that change. Yeah, well, you know, Connacht gave away 11 penalties in the first half. So that's 11 possible entry points into a game that Ulster were given. And they turned those into six points. Now, largely that was because they didn't get anything going with them all, which we know is a potent weapon for Ulster. But, and I said this in my piece in today's paper, like the reason that the first half was a better performance than the terrible second half performance, but was almost more of a concern was the fact that there wasn't that plan B, like the mall didn't work and they tried to get like hard running midfielders coming onto the ball off that, that didn't work. And then once that didn't work, it wasn't exactly clear what they were trying to do after that, largely because they would give the ball away. 
so we never really saw what they were going to try and do after that because they weren't able to hold on to the ball to implement the next thing. And that's why, in terms of game plan, I don't think you can say that there was a game plan in the second half or a discernible game plan in the second half because how were we meant to deduce what the second half game plan was because they, they didn't do anything. Like, they didn't leave an imprint on the second half with the ball in hand at all because they spent all of it defending because they just kept turning the ball over. Either way, probably. And what I would go back to from the week before with the Lions game was like, you know, Dan was asked about changing things at halftime. And his response was, well, part of it is that if you think the game plan that you've come in with is the right game plan and still think it's the right game plan, but the players aren't executing it well, then it's a matter of execution. It's not a matter of game plan. And I don't disagree with him there. Like players have to execute what the game plan is. I Personally, I would have, I'm not, disagreeing with the questions personally I would have liked to see an awful lot more once the mall wasn't working but the mall is in the game plan the mall is a method of attack but if it's blatantly not working surely you have to have something else well no because if, if the mall's not working like Ulster don't maul it from the halfway line they don't maul it in their 22 they only maul whenever they kick into the 22 so if you have a dominant maul in your first four games of the season why are you not going to try it against Connacht and we saw later in the game that it did work once there were a few personnel changes so I, I don't disagree or sorry I, I don't agree that the mall was the wrong game plan because even if it doesn't work it's still a good platform to set up of Mm-hmm. in the 22 like we, we saw right at the very start of the game Ulster kick a penalty into the corner they set up a mall and okay it doesn't go over the line but Rob Herring has a good carry Ian Henderson then has a good carry right up under, underneath the posts and Ulster turned over so the mall wasn't the wrong tactic it was then just everything they did after that you know if your mall's not working you need to have something to go to and for me it goes back to what I was saying earlier they were just beaten up at the breakdown. There was never any consistent ball. There was never any quick ball for them to work with. And whenever you don't have either of those two things, if you have one of one of the two, you can make a fist of it. But when you don't have either, then you're really working from a from a per base. I thought Stuart McCluskey was good, but there's there's still a little bit of a lack of variation beyond 12. And I, I don't want this to sound like a slight on Stuart McCluskey because I really like him as a player. He's a really good ball carrier and he does exactly what you need him to do. But again, you know, they never got the ball out wide to Robert Balakun enough. Mm-hmm. One of the big things that was made a lot of mention of before the game was how they had Robert Balakun back. But I think he touched the ball twice in a meaningful position one time he kicked down the touchline and if the ball had stayed in play, it was a great kick, but it just ran out at the five metre line. And the second was whenever he went in on that break in the 80th minute, was turned over because he had a lack of support, which was basically the story of the game. And Mac Hansen runs it back for another score. So I'm, I'm just concerned that, you know, whenever the mall doesn't work after that, the game plan's just a little bit sketchy. I'm, I'm not disagreeing with the mall as a plan once they get into the 22 it's just after that everything just seemed to be a little flat mm-hmm. not not even just sorry not even just a little flat just flat I just, there just has to be an alternative because if the mall doesn't work and fair enough I think Don came out and said I don't accept parity at the mall the players have to be accountable for that but if the mall doesn't work and you have an advantage in territory and advantage in possession as much as people find those two statistics flawed if you have the advantage in both of those regards but your mole's not working that can't just be oh well we'll take six points like that there has to be something more there and there wasn't in the first half and if they changed it at halftime 
were not to know because there were two just far too many mistakes. Well, one player that did attract the attention of some of our other questioners, and probably unsurprisingly so, given the nature of a couple of the comment tries, was unfortunately Billy Burns, JW says, from the first four games that I've seen, I felt that Billy's been very predictable in his build-up play, and this has been found out against stronger opposition. I also see he's carrying a knock for a while now, so should we start with, with Michael Lowry at 10? Adam, is it is it coming to that stage for you now where there needs to be a, a change for a run of games to give to give Michael or, or Mike, as Jonathan knows him these days, a go at a 10 there? I think if there's a time, if there was a time to make a change, it would probably have been this week if they had a game. The issue is you don't have a game for yeah. a few weeks. So it's it's not like you sort of make a make that reactionary change and switch things up for the following week. You've now got to go away. You've got to review your performance. Uh, you've got to come back into training and and then come back after the break yeah. and you, see what you've got. So if there had been a game this week, I think this would have been the perfect opportunity to put Michael Lowry in. And I know there's a lot of people who say, you know, you don't kick a man when he's down because Billy Burns will be hurting badly after this performance. Two intercept tries will, uh, will wreck a man's confidence. Um, but at the same time, I think there's certainly an argument that you've got to try something else because as uh, as Johnny and I were saying in the car on the way home, Burns has just started to have that little bit of a track record where in the big games, he's not he's not stepping up to the mark as you need your fly half to. It's in the big games where the likes of Johnny Sexton, Marcus Smith, as he started to do for, for Harlequins, they really come to the fore and they really put the team on their shoulders and play well. I thought Jack Cardy had a cracking game for Connacht. Now, it is helped whenever you have quick ball, but also as a fly half, you've still got to try and manage the game as best as possible with the ball you've got. And, you know, the first one, he passes it straight into the hands of Matt Hansen. The second intercept, the second intercept, it's really hard to judge. I've watched it back a couple of times and I still can't tell if, you know, Ross Kane should get his hands on it a bit better or if the pass just isn't quite in that position where he can get his hands on it better. But either way, it's, it's still an intercept and it's still seven points against you. Look, we've been talking about Michael Lowry for so long now and we've had the fullback experiment and it seems like this season is the season where they're really starting to see him as a 10 rather than a 15, judging by the fact that instead of bringing him in to start at 15 with Will Addison injured, they put McElroy to 15 and kept Gilroy on the wing and brought Balakoon back onto the other wing. I think maybe if it was last season, you would have seen Larry go to fullback, McElroy stay in the wing and Balakoon come in on the wing. So I think if this is the season where you're making Michael Lowry a 10 over a 15, then I think you probably need to start thinking about putting him in uh, a bit more from now on. And I'm a little bit surprised they hadn't done a little bit of rotation beforehand, especially uh, as the question noted there, Burns has been dealing with a little bit of a knock. So for me, I think, yes, now is the time where you start to think who is our 10 moving forward. Burns has been solid, but I agree that you probably need someone with a little bit more of an X factor if you really want to be taking that next step. And I suppose from just from Michael's point of view, he's getting to an age now at 23 where if he's going to fulfill the potential that he has for so long been, been said to have, then 
he's probably going to be looking at playing more minutes and looking at making more starts at this stage uh, if he's if he's going to kick on. So that's certainly something we'll be looking at when Ulster get back into action on the 27th of November against Leinster. Can I just make one more comment there? Yes, there will be a lot of people calling for Larry to start that game. You've got to bear in mind it's Leinster. Yeah. You're next yeah. up. It's it's all well and good saying we want to transition to Michael Lowry, but at the same time, you, he's still fresh. I I think he's only made one start at 10 for Ulster, possibly two. Johnny, you, you can correct me on this if you know, but you, know, you, you don't want to suddenly throw him in and shatter his confidence if Ulster don't have the greatest of games down in the RDS as well. So there's a lot of factors in play here that you can't just say, yeah, Michael Lowry's in our time moving forward. It doesn't work like that. It's I always use the American sports concept where you know not when it not winning every game isn't a massive deal because they have the playoffs. So you can afford to throw guys in and maybe you're in a rebuilding year, so you can throw guys in. It's not like that. If you throw Michael Lowry in and he sinks rather than swims, then you're harm. back to you're back to square one. And you've done more harm than good, as you say, Gareth. So yeah. it, there's a lot of moving parts here that they still have to factor in. Yeah, plenty to plenty to be thinking about for, for Dan McFarland over the next few weeks on that front. I should have said that Ken Adams was another who had asked, uh, should, should Larry be getting more minutes at this stage? So He's only had 158 minutes this season. So like, while you want to nail down a position and it looks like they want that to be 10, that only works if he gets to play 10 night. This is the boring thing that nobody wants to hear, but we don't see as much as Dam does, obviously. So we're only, we've are only we only seen him for those 158 minutes, mm-hmm. not all of which were at 10, because obviously he came on and played 15 at the weekend, and they seem to almost resist the idea that they could bring Moxham on in the back three and move Laurie into 10 earlier when it was quite clear that Billy Burns wasn't having his best day. Yeah, certainly one will, will be looking... Too, as we say, in the, the weeks and months to come. Another couple of questions surrounding the pack. Ian Kernahan says that in every big game when it counts, Ulster are beaten up front. And it's the same pack as last year. Are the same results to come? And Ken Adams adds, will Dwayne Vermeulen magically give the Ulster pack sufficient forward momentum given how feeble they looked against what was a very fired up Connacht? Just how big an issue do you see that pack being in? How uh, much of that issue do you see Dwayne Vermeulen solving? I don't love this whole feeling that Dwayne Vermeulen is going to magically solve all of Ulster's problems. You know, he's one man, he's not a superhero. And, you know, worst case scenario, let's say he comes in and like Marcel Katsia gets injured and is out for the season. You got to have some kind of backup plan that accounts for that. You, know, you, you can't base everything around Dwayne Vermeulen coming in and solving your issues because there's a good chance he won't play every game. He, he's a guy who has injury issues from the past, so you probably don't want to be rolling him out every single week for 80 minutes in the hope that he doesn't get injured. So while he will make Ulster better, you need to come up with solutions in his absence as well. So I think th- there is a degree that Ulster need to start putting in some games where their forwards are dominant. I don't think we've seen Ulster be dominant up front for a long time, and especially at the breakdown, which I've already made or said my piece on. I think there are a lot of games where they're caught out really badly. I think they do just need to find that little bit of a harder edge in some games. 
Um, I think we haven't seen the best of Dave McCann yet. And I don't know if it's just the way he's being utilized isn't quite getting the best out of him, but I think there's more to come from him, especially as he continues to develop. He's still very young and he's being given a lot of minutes in which to play at the moment. So I think certainly as, as he continues to grow into his role, he'll be better. But I think just if, if Ulster wants to take that next step, then yes, the, the forward pack needs to just get that little bit of a, just a little bit of edge. I think it's probably the best way to put it. Like there were, there were a couple of times in that game where Connacht were really up in Ulster's face and similar to the game, this was now a year ago now, the first game back after lockdown in the Aviva um, as well. I remember you could hear the Connacht forwards whooping and hollering after every single penalty when they treated it as if they'd won the game. And there were a couple of times on Saturday where it was the same. I think there just needs to be a little bit of that grit and edge in the Ulster forwards where they really take a lot of pleasure out of beating up other teams. Not literally, but, you know, figuratively. Um, that I just don't think we've seen. Well, we uh, we shall see. You could say it's a, a something of an intangible the the packs needing at the minute, which uh, Dan seems to know already. So, just looking ahead, Jack Fogarty wants to know, Jonathan, what should we see in the next section of games to show that Ulster are actually learning? Another hard one to put your finger on, I imagine. Not so much over the next block of games, because for me, the worry would be that they would have another run of games like the four that they've had get through them with 20 points and then the Connacht performance would be seen as a blip. But if they play anything like they played on Saturday over any of the next, whatever it is, seven, eight games, then they'll get thumped again. So you'll be able to see if they're learning from it because they've got Leinster away. They've got Ospreys away. who just beat Munster at the weekend. You've got Northampton coming here in a European game. Northampton have been going well. <laughs> Obviously, Handed, uh, handed Worcester a thumping that was uh, more dramatic than the one that Ulster got from Connacht at the weekend. Anyway, Claremont, you've got Connacht again back in Belfast. And if you're not up for that after four defeats to them in the last seven games, two of them at home, and uh, then what happened on Saturday, then you'll never be up for any game. And then you've got, what, Munster, and then two more European games. So, so like, genuinely, I, like, I'm, not be, I'm not being facetious or anything, Gareth. It's like, if you don't show that you've learned something from Saturday, you're going to be in for a rough enough winter. Like, Yes, I had forgotten just how difficult those upcoming run of games are. And uh, yes, as you say, it should be very obvious if there's not a, a marked improvement in performance. So that is probably that as regards that Comet game. And we can just consign it to history at this stage and uh, hopefully never mention it again other than to laugh about it when Ulster are... Uh, celebrating with a trophy or two at the end of the season. You never know. So what else do we have to talk about? Yes, we have the issue of ticket prices, uh, which we have a couple of questions in about. JWS says, such a shame to see so many vacant seats at the Aviva on Saturday for provincial Derby ticket prices be reduced to maximise attendance and attract more fans. And Ken Adams says, uh, Kingspan is £50 for a reasonable seat and £30 for the terrace plus a booking fee, far too expensive. So we've had a little quick look into the ticket prices. Uh, so Ulster's upcoming home games, Northampton, and then is it Boxing Day game? Can't remember. Is that the one against Connacht? Whoever it's against. Their upcoming run of games, Johnny, did you know there? 
Yeah, it is con- good, man. Boxing Day only means Glenavon versus Portadown to me. Nothing else happens on that day to me. So well, I've already had my holidays approved, so it'll be up to you, keep, you lads in your capable hands to see that one. <laughs> so, yes, so the ticket prices for those games at Kingspan range from 25 quid to 50 quid for a grandstand seat. Uh, that is, as Ken says, plus a booking fee. Leinster away, the tickets that are for sale via the Ulster website at the minute are 38 euro plus a booking fee for uh, yeah for behind the behind the the stand uh, the what do you call them? It's not a goal mouth. Uh, behind the post the post the post that's the word I'm looking for. That's the word that had left me. Behind the posts, yes, 38 euros plus a booking fee. And for uh, general comparison, the upcoming Northern Ireland football matches begin at 40 quid for Lithuania and 52 pounds to see the European champions Italy. That's uh, for starters. There are tickets available if you if you so desire. Um, obviously, as has been well publicised, uh, the Northern Ireland fans aren't particularly happy about those prices either. So all that said and done, what do we think about ticket prices for uh, for Ulster matches? I, th- I think we should just point out one thing in case anybody's confused. Even though you can buy tickets through the Ulster website, the away games are priced by the home teams. So yeah. it's not it's not Ulster are selling uh, tickets at that price. But sorry. Good, good point. Well made, yes. I think because it's, two, diff- it's t- two different issues about the same overarching issue if you like with regards to this week or last weekend so that is something i suppose for accountants right you know are you better reducing the price of tickets to get more people in or having more expensive tickets because yes there were an awful lot of empty seats but remember you were in a fifty thousand seater stadium Mm -hmm. so you were never gonna you know it was never gonna be full like i'd say i think genuinely they were probably pretty happy to get ten thousand in there like, How many do Connacht usually average at the sports ground? Well, I mean, the sports are, ground's tiny, like... Even though... 1,129, according to Wikipedia. And as we all know, Wikipedia's never wrong. So we can take that as gospel. Plus, so, yeah, um, so at the minute, it was under um, restrictions anyway, so oh, they, yeah. weren't even, they wouldn't even Brilliant. have been able to be at capacity. Mm-hmm. So as you say, though, Jonathan, there'd be somebody sitting somewhere, presumably with a sliding, sliding scale, working out, if we charge this amount, we're likely to get this amount of people. And we're on this scale. Do we hit peak profitability? Exactly. Um, and that's like, that's fine. But that, that's about the even. That's just about this weekend. And whether it would have been nice to have more people in, but all that they were ever going to try and do, given the scenario, the circumstances around that game and moving it, and given the circumstances around opening the Aviva back up with a view to what's coming down the track over the next three weeks, is to make as much money as possible. So that's one thing, right? But the Ulster, the Ulster tickets, I think, is probably the more important issue in an ongoing sense because I do think that if you reduced those ticket prices, you would get more people in week to week. Like, it's a business model. Pr- pricing individual tickets at that level, to me, looks like a business model to entice people to buy season tickets because, to me, there's no question that that's overpriced. I think, personally, like, the issue is that everybody values a pound differently. I think fifty pounds mm. to sit in the grandstand for a URC game is too much. Other people might not think that, but part of the problem yeah. that you have is it's not just an economic problem; it's a socio-economic problem because you price a large percentage of people out of going to games if it's that price. Like 
you know, whenever I would have went to sporting events as a kid, I went with my dad, my brother, my sister. That's four people. That's 200 quid. And at what point do people start to say, is 80 minutes Well, you would assume children's tickets are cheaper, but still, yes, it's a substantial amount for a family to, to pay out whatever the exact figure is. Oh, yes, family, family stand seats are cheaper, but we're talking about the grandstand on the basis okay, yeah. that people want to be at the side of the pitch rather than behind the pitch anyway, or behind the post anyway. And then rugby again, and I know like people might be sick of me talking about this, but like rugby is a niche sport. Like it, you need to grow rugby and rugby is no more than 10 years away from a genuine reckoning about participation numbers. And if you price people out of going to it, then that hurts the participation numbers. But this isn't an Ulster centric problem in my mind, because in my mind, Ulster tickets are priced in line with other sporting tickets. Like, you know, we were talking about how much it costs to go see an Irish league game, how much it costs to go and see the Giants, how much it costs to go and see Northern Ireland, like you were talking about. And looking at the prices of all those tickets, like I think to see international rugby players, the cost of those tickets is in line with, mm-hmm. in relation to what it costs to go watch the Giants or what it, go, what it costs to go watch the Irish League. So the problem is in general that everything is, all sports are too expensive. Everything's to too expensive. Lower the prices of everything. That's what I say. It's, it's not that that's what I'm saying, but it's just like as a society, I think people, have, and it could be a social media thing because people like to take pictures of themselves at things and mm-hmm. post about them being at things. Like we've become a society of event goers, for want of a better word. Yeah. And Experiences. The, yes. And mm-hmm. in turn, the prices of all of these things have gone up. Like, But that's just a supply and demand. If Ulster feel they can fill the Kingspan Stadium by charging those amounts, then why shouldn't they? Mm-hmm. But the idea about filling the Kingspan Stadium is a complete red herring because they never do. They've sold out like three games in the last five years or something. And they all came in a run sort of together around Christmas yeah. 2019. Exactly. Like there used to be a time when the supply and demand element was true because you had to buy tickets or you maybe even had to buy season tickets to get get to get in like for the derbies and for the European games. Like do you remember when Saracens came in a quarterfinal? Like that's that's only seven years ago. And you could not get a ticket. Like you had boys signing up the Saracens membership clubs <laughs> for a hundred pounds in order to buy tickets through Saracens mm-hmm. allocations. I know a few people who did. <laughs> yeah, where it's like, no, as long as you're organized enough to buy a ticket 10 days in advance, you can get a ticket. And like, but presumably, whoever said the different. atmosphere and it hurts the attendance numbers, but there's clearly, and this is where, this is where the problem lies because teams like Ulster who operate under such fine profit margins are just trying to make as much money as they can. Exactly. And in the current economic climate, you can probably understand why finances have to be the bottom line and short-term short-term finances even have to be the bottom line for I think this question does come a little bit off the back of the coronavirus pandemic where a lot of people are suffering financially because of it and it is a very tough situation for a lot of people to be in so I think there is a degree of people would like to see a little bit of leniency from sporting teams so that they can still have that that thing to look forward to where they've maybe been a season ticket holder before the pandemic, they would like to have that to look forward to post-pandemic, and therefore they would like it for to still be quid. affordable. We've well, taken no, fifty quid. That's the top end. Twenty-five quid. That's only what no, seven pound dearer than what we'd got for the Belfast Giants, and 
like without disrespecting Belfast Giants, Ulster Rugby, I presume, still has a, a larger appeal. And 25 quid, what's that, about double an Irish league game? But for you're talking about a professional sport here rather than a part-time support for two-thirds of the Irish league. That's what I'm saying. Like, I think it's in line with what everything costs at the minute. Mm-hmm. You know? But my concern isn't so much from... My concern wouldn't be so much the bottom line or the fact that Ulster, to be fair to them, or any sporting organisation has to maximise their financial return because, you know, because we're not, we're not talking about the Premier League where they make all their money from TV rights and loads of people are getting rich off it. Like, Ulster operate in a very... You know, they don't turn a profit. The money that they make is spent, basically, mm. essentially. So there's a difficulty in that, but it's just it's a wider concern about pricing people out and the socio socioeconomic effects of pricing people out because you're pricing a certain demographic of the of society out when as a sport rugby needs to be appealing to as wide a section of society as you can because and again without banging on about it, it is a niche sport. I think you sort of can factor the TV deal into this as well, where there was all that debate of is it better to have it on free day or TV so that it gets more viewership and therefore you're trying to attract more people to the game or is it better to chase the money and put it behind the paywall with you know with South BBC or Premier Sports deal and the URC have now sort of gone for a hybrid approach of both so in a similar way whenever you're looking at tickets it's exactly as Johnny says you're weighing up the benefits of having a full stadium every week and having more people coming to the games or maximizing your return in terms of profit. I, I don't know how much Ulster would have to reduce their ticket prices in order to get 18,000 people in week in, week out, whether it would be a dramatic drop and therefore they would actually lose money by getting more people in or whether they could drop their ticket prices by, let's say, five pounds and therefore they'd have more people come. I don't know. That's that's yeah. for the fans to answer. Somebody at Ulster rugby working this out. But even if you think about doubling the amount of people that you get in, then you're making more money. So if you have the tickets and you get double the amount in, obviously this is predicated on the fact that that, that would actually happen. Yeah. Then you get more money because people buy, well, they don't buy a program anymore because the programs don't seem to exist anymore. You know, they <laughs> buy a burger, they buy a jersey, they buy whatever, whatever, whatever. But like my curiosity about it isn't so much in crunching the numbers because that's maths and I'm not a mathematically minded person. But I'm curious as to know why somehow... Because it doesn't go, it's like, we're not talking about rugby tickets. We're not even talking about sport tickets. We could be talking about gig tickets or cinema tickets or anything. I'm curious to know how these or why the cost of these things skyrocketed at such a rate higher than inflation over the last 20 years. It is an interesting talking point, obviously, and one that uh, that impacts the vast majority, I'm sure, of our listeners who uh, who do enjoy to go to Kingspan Stadium. So, Luke, maybe you have some thoughts of your own that you would like to share with us on the, the ticket pricing issue. And if you do, please don't hesitate to get in touch at your roundup on uh, on Twitter. Do uh, let us know what you think. But that's us for this week. We're we're all out of time. Yeah, as we say, a game that. Not really much fun to look back at, but there it is. It's done and we can look ahead in the coming weeks. First of all, to the Ireland Internationals next month and then to Ulster's return on the 27th of November against Leinster. So we shall be back over the international break. But until then, thank you very much for listening from Adam McKendry, Jonathan Bradley and myself, Gareth Miller. 